Alright, hello forecasters, this is Michael Hendricks coming to you on January 31st, the last day of January, with the 6th episode of Season 2 of the podcast. Today I'm going to be talking over the 8th and 9th quadrennial presidential elections. This is the election of 1816 and 1820. Now, just looking at these two elections, uh, this may personally be the shortest podcast that I do. Uh, in existence to this point the 1816 election was a complete blowout Uh, it was the last time the Federalist Party would actually run a candidate for election although they didn't technically run a a candidate and I'll get to that here in a bit and then the 1820 election the president actually ran uh, completely unopposed which is the first and only time in U.S. elections that this actually happened. So, just a little background into these elections. Um, as far as states, uh, we are still sitting, I believe, at the same number of electors. Let's say 217 were needed in 1816. 200, okay. So, we're sitting at the same number of states, same number of electors, 217 electors needed, or electors uh, voting with 109 needed to win. By the time we get to 1820, uh, it's now up to 235 members in the Electoral College with 117 needed to win. Uh, We do have quite a bit of states added by the time we get to 1820. Uh, We have... Missouri, Illinois, Indiana all added in. It also looks like Alabama and Mississippi. So it looks like we're looking at one, two, three, four, five states added uh, to the Union by this point. Uh, At this point, Maine is still a part of Massachusetts. uh, So it has not split off into its own state or been made its own state. Uh, So we're going to look at this again. This is probably going to be one of the shortest episodes that I do at all uh, between the first and second seasons. Also, uh, I will be doing my final thought. Now, I'm I'm still, uh, at the end of the episode, I'm still kind of formulating where that's going to end up. Um, I, I know one thing I'm going to be talking about is the impending... Well, let's be honest here, ladies and gentlemen. There's a lot, politics-wise, that I can look at and talk about. The impending impeachment trial that has now seen all five of Trump's lawyers quit. Uh, There is a fact that... The Republicans, the national Republicans, have seemingly decided that... The insurrection that occurred on the 6th and everything that's happened since then is just perfectly fine. And that we should just move on as a nation, which in itself is quite an amazing thing. There's Sarah Huckabee Sanders announcing her run for governor uh, of Arkansas, which I talked about last week. At this point, I still feel like I still need to talk about it uh, just because of how insane it is on its face. 
And then, of course, there is the issue of education in the United States. As you all know, I'm a teacher. Been going through this pandemic as a teacher since March of last year. And it's looking like, at least where I teach, by the time we get back in the classroom, if we get back in the classroom this school year, it's going to be exactly a year. And it will be. If the plans say as it is right now, it's going to be exactly a year when we go back into the classroom that we went virtual in the first place. There's a lot of issues with education right now. Uh, so it is something I need to get off my chest again. I've talked about this before. I've got to talk about it again. Because it's just not good. But uh, you know, I'll talk about that at the end of this episode. But at first... We are going to talk about the election of 1816. All right, so naturally we're going to start with the 8th quadrennial presidential election that was held from November 1st through December 4th of 1816. This is the 8th quadrennial presidential election, and it will actually see James Monroe for the Democratic-Republican Party go up against Rufus King of the Federalist Party. Now, history tells us that this is the last time the Federalist Party actually puts up a candidate, but that's not entirely true. We can actually, at this point, go back to 1808 when the Federalist Party actually put up their last candidate. Uh, Because if you remember from the last episode in 1812, There was no official Federalist candidate. It was actually a Democratic-Republican candidate who ran on a kind of combined party ticket of Federalist and Democratic-Republicans. And even this time around with Rufus King running, he was never actually formally um, put in as the candidate for the Federalist Party. He was never formally Nominated is what I'm trying to say. So let's do a little background going into the 1816 election. Uh, We have President James Madison, who is ending the end of his second term. And he is going to actually carry on the tradition up to this point of choosing to retire after serving two terms instead of running for a third term. Uh, This is something that is kept as a tradition until the 1930s with Franklin Roosevelt. And it actually, because of what he did, he ran four times and won four times, dying shortly after uh, starting his fourth term, that we actually had an amendment added to the Constitution that made uh, the tradition of only being president for two terms federal law. So he is supported by, or sorry, James Monroe is supported by outgoing President James Madison, He is also supported by former President Thomas Jefferson. And at the time, Monroe was the Secretary of State. Now, the interesting thing here, even though he does have the support of two presidents, one outgoing, one former, he still does have competition within the Democratic-Republican Party caucus. And the interesting thing about caucuses up to this point... They're not like the primaries that you and I think of today, where there's this long nomination process where votes start in January 
and go all the way sometimes up until the convention no no this uh the caucus at this time is actually a congressional caucus it takes place so he does go up in the primary again sorry let's talked about how it was a caucus and called it a primary my mistake uh, but he does actually go up in the caucus against William H. Crawford, who is the Secretary of War. Now, Crawford actually did not think he stood any chance of winning at all. So he actually did not campaign. Um, and another reason he didn't campaign and didn't think he was going to win was because he was afraid that if he did run against James Monroe and lost, if he put in a serious effort, uh, he would not actually get to serve under James Monroe when and if he became president. So he made a calculated call and chose not to actually campaign. You kind of get the impression that he probably should have uh, just because of how close the caucus was, which I'll talk about here in just a moment. So the official party ticket for the Democratic Republican Party was James Monroe, James Monroe for president and Daniel D. Tompkins for vice president. James Monroe, of course, was the currently serving Secretary of War. Daniel D. Tompkins, Tompkins was the governor of New York. And I'll be honest, I don't know a lot about Daniel D. Tompkins, even though he did serve two terms as vice president. There were two other men who ran, uh, but decided that they really had no chance of defeating Monroe to become the presidential nominee. And that was Governor Simon Snyder of Pennsylvania and, of course, Governor Daniel D. Tompkins. And those that declined to run were House Speaker Henry Clay from Kentucky and General Andrew Jackson, former president, from Tennessee. So... That was the caucus, uh, and in the caucus, James Monroe ended up winning with 65 votes to William Crawford's 54. Now, going back to what I just previously said, you know, William H. Crawford did receive 54 uh, votes in the caucus ballot, just 11 short of Monroe. So you do have to kind of wonder what would have happened if he actually put in an effort to run uh, to try to beat Monroe. Would would any of Monroe's supporters have ended up backing him if he did? And then for the vice presidential ballot, it was between Daniel Tompkins and Simon Snyder, who both briefly dis- uh, thought about the idea of running for governor for president and decided against it. Uh, Tompkins won that easily with 80, 85 votes to Simon Snyder's 30. Now, what's interesting about this is this does con- uh, continue the Democratic Republican Party's tradition of having the person running for president essentially from Virginia and the person running for vice president either from New York or New England. So this is a long-standing tradition at this point with the Democratic uh, Republican Party. There was some thought to try to get Tompkins to run for president as well just to try to end that tradition, to, to end the stranglehold that Virginia essentially had on the presidents here, what was called the Virginia Dynasty of Presidents. Um, and in fact, 
when, when you look at it, this may have brought apart, brought about the end of the Democratic Republican Party because when they start actually looking at other presidents, other people outside of Virginia, that's when the party starts to kind of fall apart. But, I mean, you think about it, the first five presidents, George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and finishing up with James Monroe, all from Virginia. So let's uh, go ahead and move on to the Federalist Party candidates real quick. Won't be much of a segment here. Because, again, they didn't formally nominate anyone. This was the last presidential election that a Federalist candidate would appear in. This is pretty much effectively the end of the Federalist Party. Rufus King does become the nominee for president from New York. And John Eager Howard, uh, former senator from Maryland, becomes vice president. So we're about to move on to the Electoral College. Uh, and one interesting fact that happens during the Electoral College vote. Alright, now on to the Electoral College vote for president. And ladies and gentlemen, it was not even close. Uh, James Monroe ended up picking up 183 of the 217 delegates with Rufus King bringing in only 34. I'm not sure why my source that I I look at to get this information decided to drop the breakdown of how each state voted. Uh, So I'm going to have to do it from a map. But just to square this away, uh, Rufus King ended up getting... all of Massachusetts 22 electoral votes and all of Connecticut's nine electoral votes and all of Delaware's three electoral votes. So that's it. That's all for him. 34. In other words, 16% of the electoral college. Uh, For the rest, uh, Monroe picked up all of New Hampshire's eight delegates, all of Vermont's eight delegates, all of New York's nine delegates, all of Rhode Island's four, all of New Jersey's eight, all of Pennsylvania's eight, all of, uh, sorry, 25, I looked ahead, all of Maryland's eight, all of Virginia's 25, all of Ohio's three, eight, (laughs) all of Indiana's three, all of Kentucky's 12, all of Tennessee's eight, all of North Carolina's 15, all of South Carolina's 11, all of Georgia's 8, and all of Louisiana's 3. So, I mean, outside of running unopposed, uh, this is the largest margin to this point uh, outside of, of course, Washington. Um, James Monroe picking up 84% of the electoral votes. It is interesting that it doesn't say that four electoral votes, actually, or electoral voters did not cast a vote. Um, But, so, yeah, 183, or sorry, yeah, 183 out of 217 electoral votes, 
it's a complete washout. So we look at how uh, each state ran their electors, which I do every episode. Um, so those states where each elector was opponent by the state legislature was Connecticut, Delaware, Georgia, Indiana, Louisiana, Massachusetts, New York, South Carolina, and Vermont. Those states where each elector was chosen by the voters statewide were New Hampshire, New Jersey, North Carolina, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, and Virginia. And those states where they divided into electoral districts with one elector chosen per district by the voters of that district were Kentucky, Maryland, and Tennessee. Now, the only... The only, I guess, sore spot, the only real major thing that happened in this election uh, was when the House and Senate met in joint session uh, John W. Taylor of New York objected to the counting of Indiana's votes his argument was simply that Congress had acknowledged the state of Indiana in a joint resolution on December 11th the problem comes in is that the last votes that were accepted were December 4th a week before so he claimed that at the time of the balloting, um, Indiana was still just a territory and not a state, and therefore their votes could not be counted. Uh, the counter-argument to this was that the joint resolution just merely recognized that Indiana had already joined the Union by forming a state constitution and a government on June 29th. They're saying, their, their statement basically that Indiana had become a state in June on June 29th. They also pointed out uh, that both the House and Senate had seated members from Indiana who had been elected prior to this joint resolution, which means that if Indiana wasn't a state up until that point, it was unconstitutional to have those members in the Senate and House. Uh, Representative uh, Samuel Ingham moved that the question be postponed indefinitely which it was. It was agreed to almost unanimously. Uh, the Senate was brought back into count the electoral votes from Indiana. And it, this does have actually a parallel in a way. It has a link, has a connection to what we just saw this past January when the Senate and the House went to certify the election of 2020. And every election... Senators and House members can object to a certain state's electors not being counted for any multitude of reasons. Uh, in this particular case, uh, this year, it was, well, here's the honest truth. I still don't know why they objected. They, they threw out a lot of reasons, uh, none which really made any sense whatsoever. Um, they, I mean, for Arizona and Pennsylvania, I believe, their objection was that the states had actually made it easier to vote, and therefore it was unconstitutional. That was their argument. That was their argument. That the states had made it easier to vote, and therefore the votes were unconstitutional. Does it make any sense now? But that was their argument. And again, if you remember, they did this right after an insurrection. So, 
crazy things happen in, in Congress pretty much every election. This just goes to show that 2020 isn't the first time that there's been objections. Uh, the objection in 1816 actually had a little bit more merit because it was questioning when Indiana was actually made a state. So, James Monroe uh, elected overwhelmingly to be the next president of the United States in 1816. That finishes up the talk on the Electoral College. We're going to move on to the popular vote, uh, which was looking at the information. Uh, we had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 19 or 20 states that voted. We didn't have as many states actually report their vote out. Uh, so we'll get to that right after this. Alright, and now on to the popular vote. Again, there's roughly 20 states uh, that hold an election, uh, but only nine states actually report out any results at all. And just before I forget, uh, in this election, there was a 16.9% turnout, which is down 23.5% from 1812. Uh, and I do just want to get this quick plug out um, about the 2020 election. It is being reported out now that it is estimated that 66-67% of the country voted in this year's election. Um, once I finish this part of this podcast, I'm actually going to look back because I think that is an all-time record for elections in the United States. And it may be a, a huge um, record. But we'll make sure that uh, once I finish this particular segment on the 1816 election. So, for the popular vote, the closest state where the margin was under 10% was in New Hampshire, which was uh, won by Monroe, where he only won by 6.6%. He got a total of 15,225 votes uh, to King's 13,338 votes. A margin of 1,800 or 1,887. Now, that isn't the smallest uh, smallest margin uh, but it is in votes, but it is in percentage. Now, what's interesting is that in Massachusetts, Delaware, and Connecticut, even though they show that they voted, uh, it only shows where Rufus King won the electoral votes, and that's Connecticut, Delaware, and Massachusetts. The only three states that he actually won. Uh, but we look at the states who actually reported out, and we have Kentucky, which cast all 1,864 of its votes to Monroe. We have Maryland, uh, where Monroe received 5,994 votes to Rufus King's 4,502 votes, a margin of 14.2%, uh, or 1,492 votes. Already talked about New Hampshire, so we move on to New Jersey, 
where Monroe received 5,441 votes to King's 54, a difference of 97.04% or 5,387 votes. New York, all they did is report out the number of delegates, all 29, uh, to Monroe. In North Carolina, Monroe received 9,549 votes to King's 158, or a difference of 96.74%, uh, vote-wise, 9,391. In Ohio... We have Monroe with 3,326 votes to Mon- uh, to Kings, sorry, 593 votes, or a difference of 69.74%. Pennsylvania, which was, I mean, it was still double digit, but it was still, in quotes, close. Uh, Monroe picked up 25,749 votes to Kings, 17,597 votes. A difference of 18.65%. Rhode Island cast all 1,236 of its votes to Monroe. And then Virginia, shockingly, uh, Monroe picked up 6,859 votes to Kings 4. Or a difference of 99.88%. And it was Maryland, I, I do apologize... I said in the last segment, I wasn't sure where the four electoral votes were that weren't cast. One was in Delaware. Three was in Maryland. So, I mean, even on... In the electoral vote, uh, Monroe picked up 82.8%. Oh, sorry, popular vote. Picked up 68.2% to King's 30.9%. So, you know, that, for a quick, nice, little, easy segment, that is the popular vote for the 1816 election. We're going to turn our our sides onto the 1820 election, which, again, Monroe won unopposed. So, that segment is not going to be very long, but it is time for a break. All right, forecasters, if you haven't heard about Anchor, and by now you should have, It's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain a few details. First of all, it's free. It's never going to cost you anything to make a podcast on Anchor FM. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many, many more. You can also make money straight from your podcast with no minimum uh, listenership. And it's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Now, if you're interested in making your own podcast like I've been doing and like some of my friends and family have been doing, you need to download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Again, download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. Now we move on to the election of 1820 which was the ninth quadrennial presidential election, which was held from November 1st to December 6th. Uh, This does take place during the height of the era of good feelings, which started shortly after the war of 1812 and ended in the election of 1824 with the election of Andrew Jackson. Uh, And this is really the, 
the election of 1824 is where we see the Democratic Republican Party split. Those who are loyal, basically, or supporters of Andrew Jackson form the new Democratic Party, those against uh, Andrew Jackson and the Jacksonian democracy or the Jacksonian era form the Whig Party, which will eventually, of course, become the Republican Party. But I'll talk more about that because that's actually the start of the second party system. I'll talk more about that in the next episode. But right now we're moving back to the election of 1820, which saw James Monroe essentially run unopposed. The interesting thing about leading up to the election is that the Federalist Party, which was still around, uh, but at this point they'd been almost completely limited to the northeastern part of the United States, they will they were able to nominate a vice presidential candidate, which doesn't matter who it was, uh, but unable to nominate a presidential candidate. Now, a lot of things, a lot of things are, are going on during this time. We have the Missouri Compromise of 1820, which actually forms not only Missouri, but the state of Maine out of Massachusetts. Uh, Massachusetts going into this election was entitled to 22 electoral votes uh, in 1816, uh, but in 1820, they only got 15, with the other seven going uh, to Maine. Or sorry, nine going to Maine, three going to Missouri. A lot of switch-ups because in this election, Mississippi, Illinois, Alabama, Missouri, and Maine were all new states. Um, This would also be the... It would be 16 more years before a new state would actually get to vote in the presidential election, which was 1836 with Arkansas and Michigan. Arkansas and Michigan... Uh, are two what we call sister states because they came in at the same time. This was part of the Missouri Compromise, basically stating that if you are bringing in a slave state, Arkansas, you have to bring in a non-slave state, Michigan. Uh, And so in 1820, that's Missouri and Maine. Um... So, there really isn't a lot to talk about with this, because James Monroe is the president, Tompkins is the vice president, no one went up against them um, in the caucus, in the congressional caucus, they won easily, obviously. Uh, Monroe would actually end up picking up 231 of the 235 electors. Uh, So, well... The, the numbers kind of switched, but he ended up officially picking up 231 electors um, out of the 235. So he won all but four. Picked up uh, 80% uh, in a popular vote. No candidate uh, actually came in second with 16%. DeWitt Clinton, who was a Democratic Republican, uh, picked up 1.75%. And actually, John Quincy Adams uh, from Massachusetts picked up one elector vote from a faithless elector um, who just couldn't find himself voting for Monroe. 
So, I mean, yeah, there's really not a lot to talk about in this. Um, the, the main thing to discuss is in Massachusetts, where no candidate, the Federalist ticket, picked up 29,675 votes to Monroe's 17,619 votes. It's the only state that Monroe does not win uh, with the electoral vote. And there is really no reason given why Monroe still picked up all of Maine's electoral votes, or sorry, Massachusetts electoral votes. It is just assumed that those 15 members uh, of the electoral college from Massachusetts went ahead and voted for Monroe because he'd won by so much. He won overwhelmingly that voting for another candidate would have just been irrelevant. Now, the only real where is it? The only real uh, dispute uh, comes with Missouri. And there's a lot of information on what was going on. Um, but by the time that Congress was due to meet to count the electoral votes from the election, um, it still wasn't decided whether or not to count Missouri's votes or not count Missouri's votes because they had not officially become a state. So it was felt that if Congress counted Missouri's votes, that would count as recognition that Missouri was now a state. On the other hand, if Congress failed to count Missouri's vote, it would count as recognition that Missouri was not a state. But it was also known ahead of time that Monroe had won in a landslide and that Missouri's vote would really make no difference in the final resort, uh, result. The Senate did pass a resolution in February stating that if a protest were made, there would be no consideration of the matter unless the vote of Missouri would change who would become president. Instead, the president of the Senate would announce a final, value, uh, final tally twice, once with Missouri included and once with it excluded. So that's why we actually do have a difference in electoral votes. So technically in the 1820 election, Monroe won 228 electoral votes, and he also won 231 electoral votes because a senator did object. I'm sorry, not a senator, but a representative. Missouri representative Arthur Livermore. No. Arthur Livermore, representative out of New Hampshire. Gotta read before I say. So, Representative Arthur Livermore of New Hampshire objected uh, to Missouri's votes being counted. He argued that since Missouri had not yet officially become a state, it had no right to cast any electoral votes. Representative John Floyd of Virginia argued that Missouri's votes must be counted. Chaos naturally ensued. Order was only in store, uh, restored with the counting of the vote as per the resolution and then adjournment of the day. So, again, two elections in a row. We have obje objections to the counting of votes. So there are two official counts for the electoral vote. One including Missouri, one not including Missouri, but it does not affect the overcome, uh, the outcome of the election. Um, in total of the votes cast, even though there were 235 members of the electoral college, uh, only 232 actually voted, three were not counted, and Monroe won 231 of those, 
with the other vote going to John Quincy Adams. And that, that is pretty much it for the 1820 election. When you're unopposed, there's really not much to talk about. That's just the way it is. All right. So that is it for the 8th and 9th quadrennial elections. Uh, in our next episode, we're talking about the election of John Quincy Adams uh, in 1824. And this is that's only going to be one episode. I'll go a lot more depth into that because John Quincy Adams is only a one-term president. Uh, because in the 11th quadrennial presidential election, 1828, Andrew Jackson actually does win election, defeating John Quincy Adams. So, and the, uh, another reason that I'm going to spend a lot more time on the election of 1824 is that this is the real, true first time. Um, that the Electoral College is not fully decided. Um, where the person who wins the most votes doesn't win. Now, it's it happened once before, uh, but that was under the old laws. This is happening under the new laws that was actually made, uh, put into effect to eliminate the idea that someone could win the popular vote and not the Electoral College. As we all know now, it's happened five times since then. 1824 being the first of this. And 1824 is a real interesting election. So I will be spending all episode talking about that. Next up after this is my final thought or thoughts. And welcome back to today's final thought. Uh, And I've really been kind of going back and forth of what I really want to talk about for my final thoughts. So maybe more of a final thoughts uh, kind of deal because there is a lot going on. I I do want to quickly go back to the candidacy of uh, Sister Sarah. Uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders running for governor of Arkansas. Because what's interesting in all of this is that she is a complete novice to politics. She's worked within the political field, but she's never been a true politician. Uh, She spent most of her time, you know, facing the public as former President Trump's press secretary. And she was not really given a good grade as a press secretary. Uh, I often would tweet at her. Uh, asking her when she was actually going to do her job because she did not like doing um, press time at all or press briefings. And when she did, she spent more time kind of just yelling at people for daring asking her questions as the press. So she announced her candidacy in a video that was mostly about Trump and using fear tactics. And that's how she's going to win the state of Arkansas, become the next governor of Arkansas. She's not going to campaign on anything. I mean, she's a full week into this, and all she's talking about right now is being attacked. Well, of course you are, Sister Sarah. You're in the political limelight right now. That's what happens in politics. Those running for office are going to get attacked, and... In Arkansas, it may work for you to play the victim 
and say, look at these people attacking me. Look at the New York Times attacking me. You spent, what, three years? Almost four years as the press secretary and didn't actually work as a press secretary? And you want to sit here and play victim over it? Your whole big announcement was about being loyal to Trump and striking fear. Uh, some of the policies that you have talked about that you've thrown your hat into don't actually affect everyday Arkansans. They don't. I mean, I, I could respect you a lot more. And of course, I'm saying this as a former, a former Arkansan. I, I would probably throw a lot more respect your way. I would still, if living in Arkansas, never vote for you. I would probably, but I would probably throw a lot more respect your way if you actually talked about what you wanted to do for Arkansas instead of trying to run for federal political office, which is what you're basing your campaign on. You're not running for governor of Arkansas. You're positioning yourself as a national candidate and you're not. You know, what happens on a national federal level, of course, affects people in the states. But not to the level that Sister Sarah is doing. And if she's got anybody that's close to being competent uh, working for her right now, they, they've got to get her focused on Arkansas. You know, the, I believe the Arkansas election is in 2022. I'm going to check that before I can... Um, and I'm sorry for the, the, the silence on this as I'm gathering my thoughts and looking up something. Yeah, it's in 2022, so it's, it's it's in two years' time. I mean, she announced incredibly early uh, that she was running. Now, the current governor, Asa Hutchinson, who I'm also not a fan of, is term limited. Uh, term limited, so he won't be running. Uh, but so far, I believe Sister Sarah's the only one officially to announce. But it's expected that Leslie Rutledge, who is the current, um. Attorney General of Arkansas and Tim Griffin, who is the current Lieutenant Governor of Arkansas. Um, I believe they will run, but they've not announced. Um, here's the thing. Whoever wins the Republican um, nomination for Governor is going to be the next Governor. I, I just happen to believe that it is going to be Sister Sarah. Uh, Sister Sarah. She's the big name right now. And so it's going to be incumbent on anyone running on the Republican side, if they even want to have a chance at her, is to focus on Arkansas politics. If they can focus on Arkansas politics and what they're planning on doing for the state of Arkansas as governor, they have a chance of beating her. Because it will become very clear to voters that she's out of her depth. Because she's going to keep focusing on Trump and fear tactics. That's all she's got. So we'll see.
Um, I'm just going to keep going and break, break as I need it. And then we have the still things coming out about the insurrection that happened on January 6th. Ladies and gentlemen, as we look more deeper and deeper and deeper into this, as we find out more and more information, we we find out just how lucky we are that it failed. Because there was an absolute plan to destroy democracy that day. And there were people involved in all levels of government, from the Senate to the House, to the the office of the White House, to the Capitol Police. I mean, it is all over the place. And this this isn't conspiracy. This is actual information coming out. The former chief of the Capitol Police, actually, I think it was him, but someone within, within the Capitol Police cut funding for that day. So that's one of the reasons why the Capitol Police seems so undermanned and so underprepared. They didn't have the funding for the day. And now we're to the point where Trump's uh, impeachment trial is coming up in about nine days. And all of his lawyers have now quit. Now, some are jumping to the conclusion, because I don't believe any of them have said why they're quitting. Some have jumped to the conclusion and said they they know he's guilty and they can't defend him. I'm taking a little bit different of a tact on this. I think the reason they're quitting is because there's no need to defend him. I, I think that, that Trump has gotten the private support of enough Republican, sorry, Trumplican senators that without hearing any evidence... And they're supposed to be, uh, you know, impartial jurists in this. But they're not. But they've already assured, enough have already assured Trump that they're going to vote to acquit him, that there's no reason to defend him. I mean, the justice system in this country, as we all know, has been corrupt for a long time. You know, judging white people less than judging blacks. That's just one example. But seeing it in full display, where we have senators who are actual lawyers saying that they're not even going to consider any evidence. And then we have the senators who are trying to say that impeaching uh, an officer even though when they impeached him he was still the president but holding a trial and trying to convict him of that impeachment after he's left office is unconstitutional and I'm sorry Senator Rand Paul but that's just not true no matter how you read the constitution it's been done in the past officers of the federal government have been impeached after they left office and have been convicted after they left office. I 
I personally think that this is the end of the of the Republican Party. I could be wrong. I said this in 2000 or 2008. But I think and I, I don't think it's because we're seeing a split between Trumplicans and standard bearer Republicans. I don't think there's a lot of standard bearer Republicans left in this party. But I believe what we're seeing and why I'm saying this is the end of the Republican Party and we'll find out starting in 2022 is that normal people are not going to want to vote for a party that was perfectly fine with an insurrection. That was perfectly fine with a bunch of white supremacists and Nazis taking over the capital of the United States and attempting to kill legislatures. At least I hope that's the case. If that isn't the case, and the Republican Party, those, what we think are the normal, sane thinking people in the Republican Party, we're perfectly fine with that, and we'll continue to vote for people who believe in QAnon, and believe in all this conspiracy crap, then the United States is in a world of hurt. I don't think the insurrection on January 6th was the end of this. I think this is, I think it was just the beginning. It was the first salvo, if you will. The first battle. And I hope I'm wrong on this. I, I hope what my heart is wanting to tell me that we're about to see a split between Republicans and Trumplicans and that it's going to effectively end the Republican Party on the national level. I hope that's the part that's true. I hope what my mind is telling me that no, this is just the beginning. That this is who the Republican Party is or what the Republican Party is. I hope that's wrong. But we'll see. I'm going to break this real quick because I'm up to the 12 minute mark on this. One more thing I want to talk about in my final thoughts for today. Hello, forecasters. This is Michael Hendricks, still looking for supporters out there anywhere in the internet universe. And did you know that you could be a supporter of this podcast for as little of 99 cents a month? Or if you want to be a little generous, you can go up to $4.99 a month. Or if you want to be very generous, you can go up to $9.99 a month. All you need to do is go to anchor.fm forward slash forecast. That is P-R-E-Z forecast. Select the amount that you want to send me each month to help me with this podcast and make it even better each time I come out. Go to that website. You can also leave me a message. It is an audio message. If you say something funny, I may even put it on the air. That is anchor.fm forward slash press forecast. So your support today. So it's kind of funny as I start my final segment on my final segment, my third final thought segment. I thought this might be the shortest episode I've done, and I'm already sitting at 48 minutes, so you never know what's going to happen when you're talking. Uh, But for this last piece, I've got to talk about education and the pandemic, because we... I remember back last March when all of this started, when all school districts around the country started going virtual. 
And teachers got so much praise for being able to turn on a dime and basically reinvent the wheel of education to continue teaching our kids. And now here we are a year into this. We're coming up on a a school district I teach in when we're scheduled to finally come back in person will be exactly a year uh, from when we went to virtual in the first place. But we're, you know, we're coming up on a year and now teachers are getting fully blamed for education and the pandemic not working. And I take exception to that because most of the people saying this don't actually know what's going on. Teachers do not want to be virtual. We want to be in person, but we we know that it's we're not there yet. We know that it's not safe yet. And not all not all teachers agree with this. Some teachers say we should be in person regardless, which to me is, is dangerous thinking because it's it's not the kids we're worried about. Those of us who are saying that it's not safe yet, it's not the kids we're worried about being in dis- uh, coming back in person. It's those teachers who are in those categories that are at most risk of catching COVID. But we are doing our best. We're, we don't want to flunk students for not doing their work. But it takes a team effort. It can't just be the teachers teaching right now. Parents have got to help out. And when I say parents have got to help out, that doesn't mean waiting until you get the report card and seeing that your your child has a D or even an F and then yelling at the teacher because the teacher didn't tell you. Well, in most cases, we have tried to tell you. But when you don't respond to text messages or calls or um, group messages on different platforms, you only care, you only seem to care when the grades are posted. That's a disservice to your child. And I'm not putting all blame on, 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 on parents. This is all over the board. The ones being most affected by all of this are the kids. But teachers cannot, and we will not, be expected to do all everything. I mean, this is, this is a really deep look into the problems of education in the 21st century. Teachers nowadays, without training, are not only expected to be the teachers, but in many cases be the parents, be the social workers, be the psychologist, be the counselor, be the nurse, (laughs) and in some cases be the adult in that child's life. And teachers are hurting right now, ladies and gentlemen. We're hurting. I I know that at the end of this school year, there's going to be a teacher shortage across this nation like we've never seen before because teachers are done. Some teachers are checked out. I, for for me, 
I still wake up every morning ready to go, ready to teach. Because that's what I want to do. But it doesn't mean I'm not burnt out. My job is as an educator to teach. But I take on these other roles willingly because I know that's what our kids need. But you can't put all your hate and all your direction of where blame lies at the teachers. We're doing the best we can. Not only have we been expected to reinvent the will of teaching, we've been expected to reinvent the will every couple of weeks. Sometimes every week. And it's not the kids that are burning us out. I can't stress that enough. It is not our students that are burning us out. It is the adults that are burning us out. We're doing what we believe is best for our kids. Ah. We are still being observed in classes as if it's a normal year. I've said this before on this podcast. This is not a normal year. And so when we do the best we can on a Zoom call to teach our kids, and then we're told, this is what you did wrong, it's like, well, how do you know I did it wrong? You've never done this before either. And that's my whole point with observations. If this were a normal year, where all teachers and even all coaches have come from a place where they've educated in a classroom, they know what to expect. They know what's going on. And if they don't see something going on, they can point it out. But when we're all doing virtual teaching for the first time in in our history, you you don't know what's going on. You don't know what that teacher has tried before and hasn't worked. What you're seeing in that classroom, what that teacher is doing with their students, that may be the only thing that they've tried in this entire school year that has worked to get their kids not only into the Zoom for class, but engaged. So, we, this year is practically done. We, we, we've got to, at this point, move our mindset to next year, in, in my opinion. I'm not going to do that, obviously. I've still got to finish out this school year. But we got to do better next year, whatever next year brings. I I personally think that next year we'll be back in person. I don't think it will be normal yet, but I think we'll be back in person. The teachers need help right now. Not scorn. So, thank you for listening. Uh, Thank you for watching on the live stream, or thank you for watching the recorded uh, stream, Uh, and as always, stay safe out there, wear your mask in public, stay six feet away, if at all possible. We're getting there, ladies and gentlemen. Have a good day.